Well, good morning, everybody, and thank you so, so much for joining us this morning here at Heritage. My name's Brock Polk. I'm part of the ministry staff here, and I'm excited to offer a welcome to you, whether you're participating online in our online campus or you're here in the room. It's great for us to be able to share this time together as we reflect on Jesus and think about what Jesus means for us and what Jesus means for our community and what Jesus means for the world. And I know that it's encouraging and it's typical for us to be here on a Sunday morning and to sing songs of praise and to speak of joy and to think about what Jesus has personally done in our lives. But you and I know that as we reflect on the Lord together today, we are compelled to acknowledge some major events that are happening in our world. This week, the world was shaken by a tragic disruption of peace as the military forces of Russia began an unprovoked invasion into the nation of Ukraine. And we've seen these disturbing images and heard awful stories of aggression and violence that are happening on the far side of the world. But because we're living in a day and age of smartphones and instant connectivity, we're watching all of this unfold in real time. We're seeing it live. We're watching these atrocities. But as the people of God, we believe that God sees that too. We believe that God sees and that God cares for the people who are victims of violence and aggression, always. We believe that God is close to people who are afraid. We believe that God is in especially close proximity to people who are scared and in danger. And we believe that God grieves the loss of life and the loss of peace and the loss of happiness and security that has been inflicted on the people of Ukraine this week. And so I invite you as we begin our time with God's word together to join me in prayer for those who need to know and need to feel God's presence most desperately today in Ukraine. Would you pray with me, please? God, you are the God that makes peace and justice possible. You are the creator and the prince of peace. You are the God who can make a way when there seems to be no possible way. You are the God who sees us. And that's why today we bring our prayer to you, our prayer on behalf of the people of Ukraine. Father, we are aware that as we sit here in comfort and sing songs under no threat that there are fellow citizens and brothers and sisters in the kingdom of God who are hunkered down in subway stations and root cellars wondering what's next. And God, we pray for peace. We pray that lives would be spared we pray that weapons would malfunction. 
We pray that missiles would fail to detonate. We pray that soldiers would lay down their arms. We pray that civilians would be protected. We pray on behalf of the millions of people who are fearful about tomorrow, and we pray that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them, that they would experience a peace that is inexplicable apart from you. And Father, we pray for those who have the power to initiate war and to initiate a ceasefire. And we pray for their hearts to be softened and we pray for their hearts to be convicted by your desire and your example for peace. God, we recognize also that the fighting in Ukraine is not the only armed conflict presently happening in our world. That there are other conflicts around the world that are just as serious and we understand that due to myriad factors, some factors we can explain and some that we can't explain, we, we just don't hear as much about the conflicts happening in places like Sudan and Syria and Yemen and Ethiopia and Afghanistan and Iran and Myanmar and places that haven't even made my list. But God, we trust that you know. We trust that you know the souls and the needs and the fears that exist in those places. And we pray, Father, that you would hold them and protect them as only you can. We pray that you would speak peace to them, that you would make yourself known to them in their hours of need. And we pray that you would get every bit of glory for it. And we pray for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is the Prince of Peace. And amen. Last Sunday, we kicked off a new series of messages here at Heritage that I've entitled, Tell a Good Story. And we're asking this question together, what does it look like to live out a life story that can truly be called good? We're exploring this question together of what does a good life look like? And I know that when you think of the phrase, good life, some pictures come to mind. Maybe some names come to mind for you. We've all been in the company and in relationship of people who lived good lives. And we've attended funeral services and listened to the retelling, the recounting of lives that were full of virtue and merit and service. And we have said they lived a good life. We've studied historical figures, people who left their mark on history and accomplished great successes and made a big difference in the world around them that lasted well beyond their days. We have an idea in mind of what a good life looks like. But one person's, one person's vision of what constitutes a good life could possibly be different from the next person's vision. And you and I might have different aspirations for how we want to be remembered after this life is over. And so in this series of messages, we're not suggesting that everybody's life has to look the same. 
We're not suggesting that there's only one path to follow in this life to be able to call that life good. But what we are doing is we're investigating together. We're asking together, what is the kind of life that God desires for us to live? What's the kind of story that the creator planned for us to tell with the gift of life that we've been given And it probably shouldn't come as any surprise to us that the author of life, the designer of life, would have insight into how a human life is lived best, right? I mean, we're not surprised that a software engineer is the person who would best understand how to use the software that they designed. They can tell you what it's capable of. They can tell you what it was intended to do. They can can tell you the questions it was meant to solve. And so it makes logical and similar sense that God, the one who created and designed and established human life, would understand better than anyone what humans were designed to do, how humans were designed to function, how humans were designed to live. And, And some of God's intention for human life, some of what God has planned for human life is spelled out in the pages of the books of our Bible. If you were to look in the Old Testament portion of the Bible and look at the writings all the way from Abraham to Amos, from Moses to Malachi, God laid out a lot of specifics in the Old Testament about how people ought to live. God was giving us an idea. God was giving us a path to follow about the way that we should live in community with one another and it's a community that cares about one another and not just caring about self. God was giving us a vision of what it looks like to live in a community that is filled with selflessness. But all of that instruction, all of that Old Testament knowledge and writing, all of that instruction in those old books, it was building up to something. It was leading us somewhere. It was leading us to the arrival of the ultimate presentation, the perfect example of what a human life is supposed to be. Jesus arrived on the scene in flesh and blood, God with a body, and perfectly illustrated humanity's divine purpose. And here's what it looked like. When you look at the stories of the life of Jesus, and I encourage you to do this, if you have never taken the opportunity yourself to read through some of the scripture, you can take this challenge and read through the book of Mark. And it's it's one of the shorter books in the New Testament, but it just tells you some of the facts of the story of Jesus's life on earth in the flesh. And when you read through and study the life of Jesus, what you see is you see goodness in action. You see goodness being lived out. You notice as you pay attention to Jesus's life and demeanor and interactions, you notice that Jesus was approachable, that Jesus was patient, that Jesus was warm, I think Jesus liked to laugh and smile a lot. You get the impression that Jesus was forgiving, quick to forgive. 
you, you get the understanding that Jesus was humble. And you notice along the way that not only was Jesus willing to teach, but Jesus was a skilled teacher. Someone who spoke from a deep well of personal experience. You notice that Jesus was a constant encourager. The only people, the only people, excuse me, I don't know what happened there. The only people who didn't appreciate Jesus were the religious people who believed that he was teaching falsehood. But everybody else, all the, all the average people, all the everyday people, all of unreligious people liked Jesus a lot. They really liked being around him because he was the kind of person that you would want to be around. And one of the universal themes that we find when we start asking ourselves as we through further in the scripture, one of the universal themes we find throughout the New Testament is this call that says that Christians are supposed to imitate Jesus. Which sounds simple enough. At least a con in conceptually it sounds simple. Jesus himself said, perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And you remember that Jesus and the father are one in the same. Jesus was inviting us to imitate him. Later on, he said, whoever believes in me that I have been doing, which was an explicit invitation, a challenge, a commission that was saying, if you are a believer in Jesus, that will be demonstrated, that will naturally being an imitator of Jesus. And then there's these other writers in the New Testament and they keep saying the same thing over and over. Paul wrote things like, as I followed the example of Christ. He says, you can follow me, but only because I'm following him. And then Paul would say other things like, in his correspondence with all seven of those churches, he talks specifically about imitating Jesus. It's one of the constant themes in the Christian scriptures. Paul is letting us know, and the New Testament is letting us know, that you were pre-designed at birth to live like Jesus did. You were created with the purpose in mind of living like Jesus lived. And if you're a Christian, you weren't just pre-designed that way at birth, but you were reborn, you were recreated, you were transformed with the express purpose of showing the world what Jesus is like. And that means we really ought to be students of how Jesus lived. We really ought to give special attention to looking at Jesus's life and Jesus's manners and Jesus's habits and Jesus's responses and his reactions and inclinations, we really ought to pay, be students of how Jesus lived because our part in the story that God is writing through us requires that we behave and interact and engage as if Jesus was behaving and interacting and engaging through us. This is our part. This is our role in the story, which brings me this morning to Luke chapter four. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd be thrilled for you to pay attention to this passage with me together. Luke is the third book in the New Testament portion of your Bible. It's, you know, like 
candidly, it's one of my favorite books in the entire Bible because I love the picture of Jesus that it gives us. It's a very close, intimate picture of who Jesus is and what Jesus cared about. And when we read into the book of Luke, we are reading the story, a report of what Jesus's life on earth in the flesh was like. And in chapter four, Jesus as early, he's, it's early in his adult ministry, he's around 30 years old, and he shows up at the synagogue, which is just the Jewish place of worship. He shows up at the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth, and Luke tells us it was typical for him to be here. He, he would go there frequently. He was known in this place. It was a recognizable experience. And, and on this particular day, Jesus either volunteered or was invited to read a scripture and share a reflection about it. It was like he was invited to be the guest preacher that day. And Jesus asked for the scroll from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. This scroll is 400 years old. The writing in this scroll is 400 years old by this time. And he opens up and he reads the following passage to the people who had shown up at synagogue that day. And he said, the spirit of the Lord is on me. Remember, he's quoting Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is not the first time the people in the synagogue at Nazareth had heard this passage. This was a familiar passage. It would not have been the first time that it had been read in that location. This text was already, as I've mentioned, well over 400 years old. The Jews had been studying this text for centuries and their faith was riding on the prediction that one day God would send the Messiah to in fact free prisoners and save the poor and heal the lame and rescue the oppressed. Metaphorically and sometimes literally, they thought of themselves as the people that this prophecy was referring to. And so they wondered, what would Jesus say about this passage? What would his commentary be? What would, be, what would he be inspired to share? In the next verse, Luke chapter four, verse 20, says he rolled up the scroll, handed it back to the attendant and sat down and all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently because seating a seated position was where the teacher would actually position themselves. And verse 21 says he began to speak to them and he said, the scripture you just heard has been fulfilled this very day. Everyone in the room's got their eyes on him. They're watching. They're paying attention, wondering what fresh insight he's gonna to bring to these ancient words, and he blows them all away when he says, this prophecy just came true. Right here, right now. Not in Jerusalem, not at Sinai, not at some memorable moment in Jewish history. It came true right here, right now in Nazareth, at the synagogue, because I'm the one, I'm the prophet that the prophet, I'm the one that the prophet Isaiah was talking about. He's claiming to be the answer to their prayers. He's claiming to be the 
direction that Isaiah has been pointing this entire time. But he's also claiming all of the purposes that were included in that passage. He's declaring the emphasis and the purpose of his ministry. He's sharing his mission statement. If Jesus had letterhead, these two verses from Isaiah would be what was printed at the top. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me and has anointed me to free people, to heal people, to rescue people. And what I want you to notice, what I hope that you'll notice as you listen in and, and, and think about the significance of Jesus making this the mission statement for his ministry, what I hope you'll notice is that Jesus oriented himself toward people who were neglected and wounded and ignored. Jesus oriented his heart intentionally toward people who were abused and lost and marginalized. When Jesus looked out at the crowds of people who would follow him, when Jesus paid attention to the community in which he lived, he had a special place in his heart. He had an eye that gravitated toward the people who thought nobody saw them. He was most especially interested in the people who were on the margins. He positioned himself and he oriented his heart to see the pain that other people were experiencing in this life. And then he used his, his time and his resources and his power to do something about it. Jesus was a person of compassion, a person of empathy, a person who saw those who were hurting and rather than explain away why they were hurting, rather than defend why it wasn't his fault, Jesus was somebody who moved toward those who were hurting. There was a story that came out last February, a year ago this month, about a woman that lived on a, in a small community on Long Island, New York. And she was having a particularly rough beginning of the year. She was grieving the recent loss in January of her father and a beloved aunt who had both died of COVID-19. And in her fog and amid all of the funeral preparations and arrangements and all of the other end of life tasks that had to be managed, she hadn't gotten around to taking down the Christmas lights on the outside of her house. The reality was that she wasn't in an emotional state to take the Christmas lights down because it was her father who had put them up for her. And it was hard to face undoing the one of those last gifts that he had given to her. And so she hadn't been, been able to bring herself to take the lights down. And she received an anonymous letter in her mailbox that said, take your Christmas lights down already, it's Valentine's Day. And it hit her especially hard. And so, like so many might be inclined to do in this era, she logged on to her community Facebook group for the neighborhood and explained her situation and explained her pain. 
She was hoping that maybe the anonymous letter writer might see it and might have a little bit of empathy, might understand, but the community did more than that. The community rose to the occasion and they responded and they responded by sending greeting cards and they brought meals and they sent flowers and they made encouraging comments online and as if that wasn't enough, I mean, that would have felt like a lot. That would have been really significant. But then all of these neighbors really stepped up their response even that much more because some of them got together and got the idea. They said, why don't we get up in our attics and drag our Christmas decorations back down and put them on the house again? Yeah, the Super Bowl happened two weeks ago. Yeah, it's not Christmas time. But they said, let's get up in the attic and get all the lights back down and the yard decorations and the inflatables. And pretty soon, in the last week of February of 2021, you could drive through this neighborhood on Long Island and it looked like Santa was on his way. And those neighbors, I think about those neighbors and how they could have just joined in the frustration that their neighborhood kind of looked silly being decorated for Christmas this late in the winter, but instead they chose to put themselves in her shoes and they chose to do something to try to alleviate her pain. They chose chose to do something to join her in her pain and to do something about it. They reminded her that she wasn't alone. And that's the kind of compassion I think Jesus was known for. That's the kind of engagement, the kind of life connection the kind of participation and connection that I think Jesus was known for. Time and time again, if you read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, you read these writers saying, Jesus encountered crowds of people who wanted his help. And his immediate response was to have compassion for them. Time and time again, there there were moments when Jesus was trying to get five minutes by himself. He'd been engaging with people all day. He was tired, but more crowds came and found him. And he responded immediately with compassion. And that was what he became known for. And each time it happened, each time the writers told us about Jesus's immediate compassionate response, each time it was reminiscent of the countless times in the Old Testament that God is referred to as compassionate. This was part of the evidence that Jesus really is who Jesus said he was. Because when the opportunity came to show empathy, when the opportunity showed up to be compassionate or to be cruel and impatient, Jesus chose compassion every time. I just don't think a normal human could do that. The writers of the Old Testament referred to God as compassionate because they had experienced God's compassion themselves. But then there were other times in the Old Testament where God was speaking, where God was describing God's self as compassionate. Because empathy and compassion, these are prime aspects of God's character. And anybody who studies Jesus' life is inevitably going to notice that Jesus inherited that compassion from God the Father. What does this have to do with telling a good story? 
I think we live in a culture that discourages empathy. I think we live in a culture that trains us to suspect the worst about other people. I think we're trained to assume that everybody is trying to cheat. I think we're living in a political climate that teaches us to be suspicious of other people's pain. And sometimes, sometimes we fall into the trap of irrational thinking. Irrational thinking that makes us believe that people who are suffering are suffering because of their own decisions that they've made. I think sometimes we fall into the irrational thinking that people are suffering and that they're at fault for their situation. A theory that Jesus roundly rejects in John chapter 9. And when we fall into that trap of irrational thinking, we become more likely to dole out advice instead of acceptance. When we fall into that irrational thinking, we become more likely to dish out criticism instead of compassion. We become the kind of people that are suspicious of everybody else. What I mean to say is that we live in a culture that doesn't always reward compassion. And the truth is, the world didn't reward Jesus's compassion either. In fact, the world ridiculed Jesus's compassion. The world condemned Jesus's compassion and said, that's too compassionate. There's no way God could be that good. There has to be some limits. There has to be some boundaries. And Jesus just kept stepping across those boundaries and showing compassion anyway. What does this have to do with telling a good story? I believe compassion is one of the marks of a truly good life story. I believe the way that we respond to the people on the margins in our society is a direct reflection of our Christ-likeness. I believe our measure of compassion is an indicator and a measure of our devotion to Jesus and to one another and to the mission to which we've been called. And I suspect that this week, as we continue to watch news stories flow in from Ukraine and other places in the world where people are suffering, I suspect that it will be relatively easy for us to muster up compassion for people on the other side of the world that we will likely never meet this side of heaven. It will be relatively easy for us to muster up compassion for people who are having to hide during the sound of air raid sirens. But the compassion in our neighborhood may be harder to come by. But here's the thing. Anybody that claims to be connected to Jesus and anybody that wants to follow Jesus absolutely must have a compassionate heart for the wounded and for the marginalized. This is who Jesus is. This is what the calling is. This is what the part in the story is. And in a culture where empathy is not expected and empathy is not automatic, the followers of Jesus 
are supposed to automatically exude empathy and compassion. It's in our makeup. It's in our design. We were created for this. We were reborn and transformed for this. We're supposed to be the ones who accept and invite and encourage and appreciate and include the poor and the foreigner and the oppressed and the needy. In fact, it's exactly that kind of love that's going to make us recognizable as Jesus' people. You know, I find it consistently true. There really aren't that very many people who don't like Jesus. There just really aren't that many people. I mean, what's, what's not to like? Jesus is gentle and inviting. Jesus is not pushy. Jesus is not demanding. Jesus allows you to go the way you choose to go. Jesus is all about love. Jesus is about compassion. Jesus is about second chances. Jesus is about patience. What's not to love? And so I think there really just aren't that many people, there aren't that many people in the world who don't like that. There aren't that many people in the world who don't like Jesus. But I think there's a lot of people who think that the idea of any other humans living like Jesus is an unrealistic fantasy. I think there's a lot of people whose perception of Christians tells them that none of us take our own message very seriously. And I know that's not true. I know that's not true. Because I know you. Because I know you. And I know how so many of you are living out your faith sacrificially and selflessly and graciously. I know that the news is good. I know that there are disciples of Jesus, not just fans of Jesus, disciples of Jesus who are sitting in this room and who are about to go out into the world in just a few minutes and live out this faith in public. I know it because I know you, but we've got to keep leaning in. We've got to keep pushing forward. We've got to keep leaning into this calling that says, Jesus, who am I supposed to show compassion for next? Who is the next object of my Christ-like empathy? Because I know you're not finished with me yet. Who do I need to show compassion to next? And I think this all starts with inviting the Holy Spirit to work in us so that we can develop a stronger muscle for compassion. But the good news is that the power for that, the resource for that, the energy for that is limitless. That God is ready to empower and equip and inspire and encourage us to show compassion in ways that we've never considered showing it before. And I know it's the heart of God because that's what God did for me. That's what God did for you. This whole story about Jesus becoming God in the flesh, about Jesus putting on skin and bones, not something Jesus had to do, it was something Jesus wanted to do. We refer to it as the incarnation, the incarnation of God, becoming God incarnate. And it was the greatest demonstration in history 
of empathy and compassion. And Jesus came and showed up and lived a life among us in our culture, in our community, in our world, put up with our mess and the pain that we so naturally inflict on those who are trying to do us good. Jesus put up with all of that. Jesus allowed himself to be arrested, allowed himself to be tried on trumped up false charges. Jesus allowed himself to be sentenced. Jesus allowed himself to be stripped naked, allowed himself to be beaten, allowed himself to be nailed to a cross. And you remember that as they were putting that nail in his arm, he prayed. He said, Father, forgive them. They don't realize what they're doing. And it's compassion. And it's a moment of compassion. It's a moment when Jesus was saying, I see your pain. And I'm here with you in it. And I want to help. And that's the gospel.